Hi, I'm Grant Armstrong, and I get to serve as directing pastor here at St. John's United Methodist Church in Edwardsville, Illinois. We exist to make disciples of Jesus Christ for the transformation of the world. Our desire is to be a beacon of faith and service, focusing our passions and gifts to reflect Christ's love to the world. You are invited to join us each week at 9 a.m. for a time of traditional worship or at 11 a.m. for contemporary worship. Thanks for joining us for this online version of the sermon. Our scripture reading today comes from the book of Mark, chapter 14, verses 66 through 72. Meanwhile, Peter was in the courtyard below. One of the servant girls who worked for the high priest came by and noticed Peter warming himself at the fire. She looked at him closely and said, You were one of those with Jesus of Nazareth. But Peter denied it. I don't know what you're talking about, he said, and he went out into the entryway. Just then, a rooster crowed. When the servant girl saw him standing there, she began telling the others, This man is definitely one of them. But Peter denied it again. A little later, some of the other bystanders confronted Peter and said, You must be one of them because you are a Galilean. Peter swore, A curse on me if I'm lying. I don't know this man you're talking about. And immediately the rooster crowed the second time. Suddenly Jesus' words flashed through Peter's mind, Before the rooster crows twice, you will deny three times that you know me. And he broke down and wept. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. It is Father's Day. I know my role at several functions that I would attend with my teenage-ish aged children, especially if they're at a function with their friends and peers. We have to get all the mushy I love you stuff out of the way in the car before reaching our destination. And then once the vehicle door opens in a way that allow our interactions to potentially be observed by others, I have to pretend like I'm a loner who just likes to attend events with children because I can't claim to be related to my kids until they acknowledge that fact first. If over time, other people seem to think I am an acceptable human being, then perhaps my children will acknowledge that I have something to do with them. If I am found to be lame, I may as well just find a bench and read a book. I will not be acknowledged for the remainder of the event, and I simply have to accept that. A small part of my sacred duty as a parent is to occasionally minimize the embarrassment that I cause my children, knowing that I can never eliminate my PEF, parental embarrassment factor. No amount of historical success can render my record to be not embarrassing enough. It's always on a case-by-case -case basis, and the burden of proof is mine until it can be determined that my existence is perhaps slightly tolerable. Now, occasionally, I'll even be upgraded to amusing. Or I'll be acknowledged if there's a need for money. After all, I know what I'm good for. Our house doesn't function exactly like that, and I know as, my, as a parent, it's not my job to win a popularity contest. The cycle of being ashamed to admit that we might have been born from other human beings who still, for some mysterious reason, want to actually associate with their own offspring, it's the tale of every generation. It's part of a differentiation that happens during adolescent development, and at least on an academic level, to some degree, I understand. Sometimes we deny our origins. But today we're going to look at a much harsher denial. Not an altogether unpredicted denial, but harsh nonetheless. Jesus' follower and friend Peter wasn't one of the apostles that I typically associate with adolescence. 
And what we're hearing this morning isn't the type of normal adolescent denial. It's more than that. It's born out of rebuke and born out of fear. So we're going to dig in a little deeper to Peter's story this morning, and it leads to our first lesson, which is a question. Do people recognize that you've been with Jesus? Do people recognize that you've been with Jesus? Verse 66, Peter was in the courtyard below, and one of the servant girls who worked for the high priest came by and noticed Peter warming himself at the fire. She looked at him closely and said, you were one of those with Jesus of Nazareth. I want to catch up to this point a little bit. Previously in Mark's gospel, you have Jesus talking about his death, and we learn that the religious authorities are plotting to kill Jesus. We read that Jesus has been anointed by a woman of ill repute in Bethany to the embarrassment of some of his followers. Judas then agrees to betray Jesus by sharing a location where the plotters can find him somewhat alone in exchange for money. Jesus and the apostles share the Last Supper together. Jesus predicts Judas's betrayal, institutes the Lord's Supper as the basis for our communion, and then Jesus takes them towards one of his favorite nearby spots to an olive garden, which is on the path back to Bethany. And that, on the way, Jesus told them, All of you will desert me. For the scriptures say, God will strike the shepherd, and the sheep will be scattered. But after I am raised from the dead, I will go ahead of you to Galilee and meet you there. Peter said to him, Even if everyone else deserts you, I never will. And Jesus replied, I tell you the truth, Peter. This very night, before the rooster crows twice, you will deny three times that you even know me. No, Peter declared emphatically, even if I have to die with you, I will never deny you. And the others vowed the same. Jesus is subsequently betrayed and arrested. In another gospel, we learn that it was Peter who attempted to stop the address, uh, arrest by striking one of the high priest's slaves with his sword. And Jesus rebukes Peter and goes willingly with the arresting mob and the disciples scatter. Jesus is taken to the high priest's house where a late night trial would take place with a silent Jesus and a confounding number of contradictory perjuring witnesses. The high priest asked if Jesus is, in fact, the Messiah, Son of God, and Jesus replies with a powerful phrase, I am, identifying himself with Israel's God. And they hope to have Jesus put to death for blasphemy, and the mob starts to physically attack Jesus. So Peter, he's been a part of this movement of Christ. He tried to shut down the mockery of the rabbi. He was shut down himself. And now he's seeing that claiming to be associated with Jesus can lead to some potentially horrifying outcomes of abuse or perhaps even death. So he's watching from a distance. What he hopes is a safe distance, but his cover is blown. How? How do they recognize Peter? So many of the people that were traveling with Jesus into Jerusalem came from Galilee. Galileans at the time were noticeable by things like a a regional accent, a little bit how you can differentiate those from the northern part of the U.S. from the southern part of the U.S. There was probably a bit of difference in apparel. Jesus did draw folks like laborers and fishermen, so that may have been apparent in the courtyard of this religious gathering also. Peter certainly didn't volunteer that he was there to check on his friend Jesus, and still, someone could sense his association with Jesus. Could someone do the same with us? Maybe not with a regional accent or with our clothing. Maybe not even because we volunteer that we are friends with Jesus. Could someone sense that our lives have something to do with Jesus somehow? 
where they see it in our love, our joy, and our peace? What about our patience, or generosity, or loyalty, or gentleness, or self-control? These spiritual fruits that grow in followers of Jesus, these works of the Holy Spirit in our lives speak volumes about our relationship with Jesus. In a crowded courtyard, could someone uniquely call us out as someone who has been with Jesus of Nazareth? Because somehow Peter was identified in a way that made the words to follow ring hollow. That leads to our second lesson. There are always cultural pressures that tempt us to deny Jesus. There are always cultural pressures that tempt us to deny Jesus. Verse 68, but Peter denied it. I don't know what you're talking about, he said, and he went out into the entryway. Just then a rooster crowed. When the serving girl saw him standing there, she began telling the others, this man is definitely one of them, but Peter denied it again. A little later, some of the bystanders confronted Peter and said, you must be one of them because you're a Galilean. And Peter swore, a curse on me if I'm lying. I don't know this man you're talking about. From the beginning of the movement initiated by Jesus to follow after what adherents would refer to in the earliest part as the way, Christianity has faced some degree of persecution. The execution of Jesus by the Roman Empire is a tip-off that we're not dealing with a value system or concept that people in places of authority and influence will always embrace. By 64 AD, we have reports that Nero Caesar attempted to blame Christ followers for the great fire of Rome. Regardless of the instigating reason, Jewish people and Christians were both targeted by the Roman Empire and Christians uniquely because they refused to declare that Caesar is Lord and pay tribute to the cult, which required sacrifice to Caesar as to a god. Christ followers of the time would not do it, and many of them paid for their devotion to Christ with their lives. To some degree, that changed when Christianity was embraced by Constantine around 313 AD, making the Christian faith the official religion of the Roman Empire. Up until that point, you have underground churches and house churches and gatherings and catacombs. They use symbols like the ichthys fish to identify themselves as people of the way, as a bit of a secret handshake for the initiated. Around the world today, there are over 60 countries that have policies which prohibit or are hostile towards the practice of Christianity. There are thousands of people who die every year and a thousand imprisoned for affiliating to Christianity or refusing to renounce their faith in Christ. Now, Christians throughout history have not been innocent when it comes to persecution, and I offer no excuse for that. I know as people who should be defined by love and our value for life, we get it wrong far too often, and I can't begin to defend those tragic sins. That doesn't undo the hardship that many face for being identified as a follower of Christ. And I don't think what Christians face in the U.S. is persecution. Sometimes Christians find themselves on the receiving end of the cancel culture pendulum. Maybe it's because one particular Christian is being a jerk. Sometimes we get called out because points of our faith are seen as anachronistic or out of touch. Other times, people think that Christians are backwards or gullible for believing in a superstition. There are instances when those things impact the safety, livelihood, and welfare of American Christians. I'll mention it. It's not that there aren't people in America who don't experience real persecution. It's just not typically linked to an affiliation with Christianity. Most of the time, a known connection with Christ might make some U.S. Christians, and especially mainline Christians, 
a little embarrassed. It could stir up strife in our lives. It might tarnish our well-curated image. Sometimes we just don't feel like dealing with the consequences of owning our faith. Or maybe we come to the realization that what we have is a, a faith of convenience and not a faith of conviction. If so, what are we telling Jesus? I'll follow you, Jesus, but maybe not there. It's not always friendly out there. There are people who might criticize me or they'll ask questions that I'm not sure how to answer. People might even think I'm connected with a political party that I might not agree with. I mean, maybe you don't understand Jesus, but sometimes people might think I'm weird. And like Peter, maybe we'll deny our relationship with Christ like he's a stranger. And as he offers himself in our place to purchase mercy for our failures... Maybe we'll treat the one we claim to praise like we don't even know him. Because we're afraid? Because we think it's easier to walk away? That leads to our third lesson. Denying Jesus results in more grief than freedom. Denying Jesus results in more grief than freedom. And immediately, the rooster crowed the second time. Suddenly, Jesus' words flashed through Peter's mind. Before the rooster crows twice, you will deny three times that you even know me. And Peter broke down and wept. Two weeks ago, we heard about the crowd who abandoned Jesus after Jesus gave a crowd-thinning instruction. And Jesus asked the apostles if they, too, were going to abandon him. And do you remember the first response? Peter replied, Lord, to whom would we go? You have the words that give eternal life. And yet here Peter is, inviting a curse on himself if he's lying about knowing Jesus. The Jesus that prior to this, Simon Peter declared to be the Messiah, the Son of the living God. The one who called Peter out of the boat to walk on the surface of the water, and he did. The one Peter saw communing with Moses and Elijah on the mountaintop, absolutely glowing with the glory of God. The one this former fisherman pledged to follow even to his death. And yet here he was trying to preserve his life by denying Jesus. The one who predicted Peter would do this very thing. And in Peter's confused and grieving mind, I have to imagine the shaming words, I'm disappointed. I'm just disappointed. Echoed nonstop. Have you ever heard those words? I'm disappointed. I'm just disappointed. Those are some loaded words, aren't they? If aimed at a person, the implication is that a person has failed. If they've been aimed at you, the sting of those words come with the intent to tell you that you have failed. I've heard those words used, I've heard people use that term to offer a type of feedback that often doesn't restore someone. Usually it's to weaponize someone's shame by using our expectations, whether or not they're reasonable, to let someone know that they have let us down. It's a power move, and the move isn't towards bringing a rebalance to the relationship. It's designed to make a person feel less than, and so often it works. I've had to desensitize myself to those words over time. If I tried to base my worth on whether or not I meet everyone's expectations, whether or not they're reasonable, I'd feel no more than an inch high. It's one of the reasons I have to base my sense of worth on what Jesus thinks of me. There have been times when I've tried to plant the words I've disappointed in my understanding of Jesus' thoughts about me, and I always sense the Holy Spirit tries to diffuse that shame before it can take root. And here's why. 
Jesus didn't come to minister on this earth in perfect love and obedience and offer himself as a sacrifice on a rugged Roman cross because he thought everything was going fine and we could make it on our own. Jesus came because he knew we were broken. He knew we were in need of rescue, not because he was disappointed in our failures. He didn't come to heap shame on those who were already wounded. He came to lift us out of that shame, the shame that separates us from the God of life, the shame that leads us deeper on a path to despair and death. It wasn't disappointment. Jesus already told Peter he knew what was going to happen. It wasn't disappointment that brought them to this point. It was love. It was love. That's what's at stake when we walk away from Jesus. When we deny Jesus, we let the opinions of others define us, and a fear of disappointment and shame place a wedge between us and real love, between us and chance at redemption. When we walk away from Jesus, we walk away from the very power God has introduced into the world for the purpose of defeating the wounds and sin and shame and leading perhaps to a willful separation from Jesus that could be ratified for all of eternity. Peter thought he could avoid hurt by denying Jesus, but his hurt only deepened, and he knew he had no remedy for his sorrow within himself. A curse on me, he said. I'm sure it felt exactly like a curse. There was a remedy, though. There is a remedy for Peter and for us. We're going to find out more about that in next week's sermon, though, called A Restoration Story. Would you pray with me? Gracious and loving God, we thank you that we have the opportunity to know who we are, not based on the thoughts and opinions of others. We don't have to live in fear or shame, wondering if we might disappoint. We get to walk being recreated and reformed into the divine image because we are being rebuilt by your love, by the gift that you've given to us to start fresh and have a brand new opportunity this morning and every morning. So God, we offer ourselves to you. Give us a fresh start. And when we're tempted to deny you, when we're tempted to walk away from the very name that gives life, help us to cling more tightly to you, to trust in you, and to know that you are here not to heap shame upon us, but to draw us out of death and darkness. We thank you. We love you and we praise you for all this in Christ's holy name. Amen.